I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and today... We talk about integrating sport into life. We discuss the importance of sport within life performance, the value of coaching and how to be coached, and also the traits of effective leaders. The roots tackle these subjects? Well, a discussion with a long-time Purple Patch athlete, Pasquale Romano, or Pat Romano as he's known to us. Both a Purple Patch athlete for now a decade, but also the CEO of a company that you'll hear much more about, ChargePoint. He's an amazing leader of a thriving business and also a family man with kids, multiple time Ironman finisher, including, yes, that one that's over in Hawaii. He is, quite simply, a living and breathing example of high performance. And as you're going to hear in the discussion, a treasure chest on insight and lessons for all of us. I've had the chance to coach Pat for goodness me all of these years now and I have to say and I hope he's not listening his evolution and growth as an athlete human and leader is quite incredible he's a massive part of the purple patch journey and well I was honored yeah I was honored and excited to chat to him we had this discussion while we're out in Kona our annual training camp and Pat is yet to miss one of those and so with that in mind, we're going to talk all about camps, but let's mesh it with the jingle. Hit it, Barry. We like the way he thinks, serious with a wink. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. Yes, the Word of the Week this week is training camp. Ooh, a training camp, a chance to go away and punish yourself for a few days without distraction. Well, yes, in a way, but an effective training camp is about so much more than just that. Fatigue is easy. It's not hard, as I say to the campers on day one, it's not hard for me to destroy you. I could do that in a day, but a training camp it's much more than that. One of the things I'm incredibly proud of at Purple Patch is our ability to host a terrific and high value camp for all levels. Here in Kona, we had athletes that needed a helping hand, a little push up the low back to get over the steeper grades, all the way up to multiple Ironman and Ironman 70.3 winners. We had a 24-year-old newbie phenom with just four races under his belt, we had a 63-year-old ex-ballerina looking to thrive in multi-sport. But the common thread, self-improvement. No ego, no prizes for being first, just a collective desire to improve. And a quest from the coaching team, five Purple Patch coaches here in Kona, a quest to drive that improvement. But what is the value of a camp? Well, yes, time away, community, fun, hard training, all really good aspects. And it's important and enjoyable, but it's only a part of it. The backbone, the backbone of a real camp should be education and skill acquisition. You should learn the tools and habits that you can then go home and implement on a daily basis. And that 
is the power of a camp. And that's why we call it an empowerment camp. Because by coming to a camp, we want you to learn to ask questions and to go home and be able to implement it into daily life. Because that is how performance starts to occur. We anchor our camps in a very simple principle. Educate, then execute. Form, management of yourself, management of the terrain, the conditions, and so much more. And no person should leave without a set of performance epiphanies. From Purple Patch Pro, Chelsea Sodaro, all the way up to Max, that 24-year-old phenom. And yes, there's more as well. Because there's the underlying shared experience and the magic of spending time with people in a performance environment. And one that isn't threatening. The dinners, the conversations, even the wine and beers on the last night. We don't want you to be a monk. We want you to have fun, learn and be empowered to go home and implement. So yes, you should go home really challenged, really stretched, but always successful. And that is the mission. And that is why the word of the week this week is training camps. Oh, and if I've tickled your fancy... Guess what? You can join us. They're really special. And coming up, we have our annual South Carolina camp, all set in the foothills of the mountains of North and South Carolina. It's not many months away in August, and we just released it for registration yesterday. There are very few spots in this. We make it really exclusive, really nice, and it has a very high coach-to-athlete ratio to ensure that you can go home successful. In Kona, we had a few podcast listeners, non-Purple Patch athletes, that join us, and they all left with smiles. And I really hope that you will too soon. So just simply head to purplepatchfitness.com, head to the camps page, and you get all the latest information. But now we head to the conversation with Pat. I think you're going to enjoy it, no matter whether you're a mum, an athlete, a time-starved person, or even a CEO. And Pat, a little message for you, just in case you are listening. This week, you are, just you, Pat, you are literally the meat and potatoes. Right, guys, it is, yes, the meat and potatoes, and we have a very special guest joining us today, the CEO of ChargePoint. More importantly, perhaps, at least from my lens, a purple patch athlete since 2010, Pat Romano. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. I have been really intrigued to have a conversation with you for a long, long time. We have had multiple conversations, but I, I feel like this collision between C-level executive, you've gone through multiple companies, we've gone through that already in the bio, but also the intersection with sport and life and performance. I think that our listeners are going to get a lot out of our conversation today, if we can get through it without laughing too much. That's going to be our quest. Um, so let, let's get right into it, and uh, we're going to do a, a quick and dirty, and I think the important thing, as I always do with all guests, is to give some some grounding, some framework, and really some background because people get catapulted, whether a pro athlete, whether a CEO, whatever the, one of the guests will be, and they just think of the now. But I'd like to go all the way back and just give us a, a couple of minutes of your background, where you grew up, your parents, your siblings, etc. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey uh, on the east coast of the U.S. Uh, my 
uh, I, very traditional Italian family. My my father's from uh, a little south of Naples in a little town outside of Salerno, Italy, where most of my family still resides. So whenever yeah. I visit Europe, I, I went up stopping in to see them. And my mom, uh, my mom is from a deep Italian family as well. So her her um, uh, relatives don't. You don't have to go very far back to get to Italy as well. Uh-huh. So my. 23 and me is the most boring on the planet. Not as boring as mine. Mine's like a plumb line from the, from the east side of London. So. Yeah, I've got one brother. Uh, we have fantastically ethnic names. Uh, mine is Pasquale and Pasquale. he is Mario, right? So like, you know, uh, you couldn't get any more stereotypical New Jersey than us. And you had a really sort of quite humble background, yeah? Growing up, it was uh, middle class, really, is it? Yeah, well, my, so I, uh, you know, my dad's, you know, uh, if, if not the person I look up to the most in the world, one of the top three. And he, um, he, uh, you know, came over from Italy with nothing. And he, um, basically went through a whole bunch of apprenticeships, wound up buying a shoe repair shop from his cousin Wow, that he, you know, that he, that he worked as an apprentice in and he wound up, um, you know, bootstrapping himself into ultimately when I was a little bit older into a shoe retail store and kept the shoe repair business as well was when he retired was the longest standing business in the Princeton Shopping Center. Like everyone had come and gone and there he is like, you know, the little engine that could. And uh, the thing that was the biggest impact on me, I think, as a kid, and I didn't like it as a kid, but it really kind of indelibly changed my work ethic. I had to work in the family business. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And you know what he used to tell me then is, hey, if school doesn't work out for you, you've always got a fallback. <laughs> Can extend the run in the Princeton Mall. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and tell me about your study, where you, where you studied. You went on to university from, uh, from high school. So tell me about your background in, in studies. So my, you know, like most immigrant um, families, uh, you, I, I, it doesn't matter what culture you're from. There seems to be just an incredible emphasis on education. So I actually went to a very expensive, way above my parents' means, uh, uh, prep high school, much like Hawaii prep, where we had the swim and, and track workout this exactly, morning here yeah. in here in Hawaii. Well, I went in Princeton, New Jersey, where my dad's business happened to be. And so I got a great start there. It was a little place called the Hun School of Princeton. It was half boarding and half day students. Um, and then I uh, managed, I don't know how, managed to get my way into Harvard um, uh, and, and studied computer science there. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, I went to MIT into the Media Lab program because it was um, you know, that was the one program that was actually trying to solve, I think, real world problems. It wasn't so theoretical. And, and uh, I really kind of fell in love with the program and wound up doing image compression work there as my research. And, and I left with a master's degree. I didn't stick around for the PhD program and immediately started. I actually started my first company overlapped with that. Oh, wow. I tell you, I, I didn't realize that actually. I didn't realize that you'd gone to MIT. So uh, I think many moons ago you told me that. But, uh, but I'd forgotten that. I remember the Harvard passage. What about sports then? Uh, so many people you're, you're now, you can identify as an endurance athlete now. Growing up, high school all the way through, give us a little journey of sports. Well, you and I talked about that a little bit about our kids. Um, I think, you know, uh, when when I was a kid, you didn't, there was no way to, there was none of this 
club, you know, you had to become, you know, a, a professional soccer player at age six, so you were washed up. Yeah. Uh, you know, none of that existed. So you tried a variety of things, and my parents were pretty big on making sure that I had a whole potpourri of stuff in front of me as experiences. So um, I played baseball, soccer. Uh, when I got to high school, uh, I ran track. There was, there was no recreational track teams back then or running clubs or anything like that. So that's when I got into running. And uh, my parents also, I, I know it's not a sport, but, uh, you know, I studied piano from the time I was about seven. Oh, wow. Uh, so they, you know, they really emphasized you know, the whole spectrum of stuff. And, and they did it for my, myself and my brother. And I remember conversations with my mom and dad about, hey, we're just going to put everything in front of you and whatever you like, you, you, you latch onto. It couldn't be a more classic immigrant story of, you know, the parents coming across and then literally putting an explosion of things in front of you education being really valued sports and trying everything musical instruments it, it really uh, it really resonates with me that it's, uh, it's it's incredible what was the first time i know you did track in high school you went on and grew up and went to harvard went to mit when did you come back and really start engaging in endurance sports so well actually when i the one thing i didn't mention is when i got to college um, uh, I actually rode crew for a brief period of time at Harvard oh. and really wanted to stick with that. Um, but the problem is I was a computer science major and the, the crew workouts are, uh, there's two workouts a day in the morning and in the afternoon and they're great. And I stuck with it for a while. Clearly I was not going to go to the Olympics. Um, I'm just not that gifted an athlete. And so I had to drop that because there was no way I could manage a tech schedule, tech class schedule with that. But I did enjoy that uh, for the period of time that I did row mm -hmm. and I liked the racing. And so uh, that and my track experience tend to inform me that I'm better at that stuff than kind of the more hand-eye coordination, you know, kind of related sports. Mm -hmm. So I wound up sticking with running, got into cycling. Uh, and then after my uh, daughter was born in, in 2000, uh, 2000, December 8th of 2000, I've only made a New Year's resolution once. And that was to make sure that I got back to regular physical activity because you let you know a lot of parents do this you let yourself go when you uh you start having kids because it's such a massive disruption in life and 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 i wound up having three two years apart and it's no excuse i should have had the mental wherewithal to stay stay with it and didn't but i hit the reset button at that point and a good friend of mine who got me into triathlon ken mckinnon um, i used to run and cycle with him and he was an iron man in the 80s Oh, wow. And yeah. he wanted to go do one again. And so that's in 2007, after years of running and cycling with him, we wound up, tra started training for an Ironman. And I, I, I did my first one in 2008. So we started training in 2007. Brilliant. And we started working with each other. In fact, do you remember who? Uh, yeah, who Lindsay, Lindsay Corbin. Lindsay Corbin, very um, legendary athlete in the sport and uh, was purple patch athlete for several years. Wonderful person. And her husband, Chris, great. And introduced, I think, in 2010. Was that right? Yeah. 2009 or 10? Yeah. In uh, June of 2010, I qualified for Kona at Ironman Coeur d'Alene. That's right. That was my second Ironman. 
<laughs> that I had ever done. Yeah, what at, have you done to yourself? <laughs> yeah. Well, and so I'm at an Ironman executive challenge, um, uh, kind of post-race reception. And Lindsay, they always usually bring in a, a pro athlete or two to give us some wisdom. And Lindsay was there and she was really nice. And, you know, she congratulated me on qualifying for Kona. And I, uh, and she asked me if I had a coach and I said, uh, no, I'm in way over my head. And she goes, well, you should just use my coach. And I said, uh, no, you don't understand. We're at a little bit of a different level here. I'm like, you know, that's, no, 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 no. He's, he's, he's fine with amateurs as well. He coaches amateurs as well as pros. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a full spectrum. And I said, sure. And that's how you, and I remember the email exchange. And then we talked on the phone and you had all of six or eight weeks to try to weave magic. Yeah, there was, yeah. <laughs> And the rest is sure history. <laughs> well, I think I think I should say that publicly, thank you, because now we're still uh, with each other, and and we sit here today as uh, as Pat alluded to. By the way, if you guys listening, we're we're in Kona for the Hawaii training camp, and I think this is your ninth, or or uh, I think it's your ninth uh, camp. Yeah. camp. Everyone, so, every one of the ones here I've been at. Every yeah. one of the ones here. And the one in Arizona. So we're going to talk about the main theme of today is going to be about performance and we're going to talk about sport and performance uh, in order to do so we have a grounding of yourself we need to talk about your company that you lead charge point not everyone will know charge point many people will not everyone will so so why don't you give us a, just a quick synopsis of of what charge point does you've now been there for nine years yeah yeah nine years uh it was nine years just this february uh, so it's uh i think confusing for an electric vehicle driver because when they pull up to a charge point charging station they think we own it and are selling power or giving power away how you know some most stations don't have a price because it's used as an amenity we're actually much like airbnb doordash uber in that we crowdfund all the capital necessary to deploy fueling infrastructure for electric vehicles because it's charge where you park you're not driving somewhere to go fuel your vehicle sure it's, you're, you're taking on energy while your car's not doing anything which actually makes it much more convenient but to do that the number of charging stations that you need to cover the geography is a lot larger than the number of gas pumps that you would need of so how do you solve that capital problem well any one business doesn't view it as massive so you just have to aggregate the buying power of all these businesses and make them want to do it either as an amenity or something that uh, either uh, makes their customer affinity higher or adds a little bit of revenue if it's a parking operation they can get the utilization high enough so we're essentially uh, selling subscription services to keep those chargers on our network. So it's a, re it's a recurring revenue model. And you can either buy the hardware from us or we can bundle the cost of the hardware in in many cases and just up the subscription fee and it's pay one price completely turnkey and we can set up everything for you. And then you get a website that you can log in and control all your chargers. Oh, brilliant. And it's... Uh, it, 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 <laughs> I know you guys have grown rapidly, but give us... Uh Give us what you can share, the, the growth over the last nine years, because it's, I mean, you're right on this wave of explosion of of, um, of electric vehicles and everything around that, obviously, clean energy. So um, so what's, what's the growth been like internationally? 
So, I mean, just to talk about it in general, yeah. uh, you know, it's the it's the classic hockey stick in new markets. Uh, so it's an exponential growth curve. Um, I can't talk about the revenue numbers because we're course. not public. But yeah. what I can do is talk about the money we've raised, and, and it'll give you a proxy, a general idea of how to think about mm-hmm. the growth in the company. We've raised about five hundred and forty million in capital over a series of venture rounds. Uh, the later rounds, actually, the 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 typical investor is not a venture profile anymore. It's more, much more late stage because we're mm-hmm. hopefully yeah. pretty close to taking the company public over the next few years. And um, most of that 540 million came in in the last three years. Okay. And the reason is that the market has to believe. And, and, and if you see it before anyone else does, by definition, you have a capital problem. <laughs> Because you've seen it before anyone else. And if you don't see it before anyone else, well, you don't have a company. Yeah. So every entrepreneur deals with the, God damn it. Why aren't every, why doesn't everyone else see it this way? You know, what's that saying? Profits are lonely people, right? (laughs) So, so uh, I think you even raised an eyebrow when I took that job. Yeah, I did. I I said, take a, take a bigger break. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's Matt's nice way of saying, I don't think that's a good use of your time. So, (laughs) so uh, at any rate, we're up to now probably around 110,000 chargers that are uh, mostly in North America, but we are expanding pretty rap- very rapidly in Europe. We're already in 17 countries in Europe. Uh, um, you know, so we're uh, really spent the last two years trying to build up an organization, actually the last three, build up an organization and all of the infrastructure for support. Um, we have a lot of very large customers that are, say, leasing companies there because that's how company cars get to individuals. It's a big part of people's compensation package in Europe is they mm-hmm. get a car with their compensation depending on the company and the country and the level, yeah. but it's pretty common. So building up all that infrastructure to serve all those markets has been the labor over the last three years. And that revenue is growing nicely. And we expect that over the next three to five years to probably eclipse the U.S. given that the mandates there for full electrification are going to pressure that uh, harder than in the North American markets. And that's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's all up to say you've got, uh, you've got family, you've got kids. This is a busy time. You've got a lot of travel. Give, give us, as we go into the, the sport component, give us just a, if you can, and this is a typical schedule of a week, really, really, really under 30 seconds, but typical schedule. It's busy, yeah? Oh, my week is, if you look at, if I pull my calendar up on my phone, it's just one giant colored bar. It's line to line the entire the entire time. In fact, one thing that I think is a skill that everyone has to develop is how to manage what you spend your time on. Mm-hmm. So I really am very much focused on ta- the time management component because much like closet space, y- your clothes will fill any closet size that you have. So your calendar is kind of like closet space. And so you have to curate. Yeah. And even with a curated calendar, there's a million things to do. So a typical schedule for me, it's probably 30% travel at least. Mm. There are months that are higher, uh, but it's a solid 30% travel. It's at least one week in Europe every four to six weeks. There's a lot of domestic travel. I try What I try to do for time management reasons is I try to compress my uh, even domestic travel so I have multiple things I can do in one trip. The worst thing you can do is an out and back to New York. Yeah. Where you Quick have, where you have yeah, you've, you know, 36 hours, 
48 hours of transit for a two-hour meeting, it's just very inefficient. So I try to pack as much together as possible. Not always possible, but that's what I do. And and the reason I ask that, obviously, is just to give us... We now arrive, we talk about sport, and when we are approaching your sport and your endeavor... Uh, has been Ironman at the moment, Ironman 70.3 or, or half Ironman and other stuff, New York Marathon and things like that. But it is a the epitome of what we like to call it purple patch, a time-starved athlete. We have an optimization challenge every single day, every single week from 2010 until 2020 and present uh, is an optimization challenge. And I want to dig into it a little bit because through that time, you've really managed to maintain consistent, not just training, but racing as well. Uh, within family and everything else. So what is the role of sport and training in your life? Uh, Well, one of my favorite sayings is the part of your brain responsible for judgment doesn't know what context it's operating in. So sport, especially endurance sports and training, emulates a lot of the challenges that you have managing schedule, time, uh, dealing with unknowns, uh, being coached, learning, uh, being comfortable, not being good at something, all the things that you have to do, no matter what phase of life you're in, whether you're a parent, because uh, you never have all the answers when you're a parent, you like to think you do, but you don't. Um, uh, work is the same way, especially like, I mean, entrepreneur in a new market, um, no one's got the answers, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, you don't have all the, if you're in my job, you don't, you're not as good at what your people do as they are by definition, because you have such a breadth of skills that you don't have. I mean, you're a, you're a mile yeah. wide and an inch deep mm-hmm. if you're someone like me and <clears throat> being a bit time starved for triathlon training and have to really think through with a coach, how to fit that all in and be consistent, I think is huge parallel, a huge impact in your whole brain, your whole psyche. And then what it also does for me is I'm a, much more effective traveling business person because I could just see it. I, when I, I can, I can hit the ground. I, I, I don't feel like I've been raked over the coals because I know how to cope with that. Mm -hmm. I know how to deal with, you know, I typically will hit the ground, go for a run, uh, you know, hydrate well on a plane. Um, I, I know how to manage my sleep. I certainly shy away from, you know, the late nights at the bars in the hotel yeah. uh, on a business trip because no good comes of that, exactly, uh, yeah. you know, especially on your, your, if you're there for a week and you're already jet lagged, mm-hmm. you're not going to be on your game the next day. So it really kind of helps you judgment wise. And then I think it just overall ups your tenacity, your grit. Um, I find that when I was younger, I used to react to bad news way differently than I react to bad news now. Mm-hmm. I'm unfazable now. And I think that's a combination. It's not just endurance sports. It's, it's you know, it's kids. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. being a little older, having a little experience. But the endurance sports certainly have helped. And what about – I appreciate that. I want to take that question. I'm going to ask you something else. I'm going to, I'm going to frame it in my terms first. I always say exercise is random. And so everybody should train. And the reason that everyone should train, you don't have to be an athlete to train because training is structure. It, it, it is actually progressive and structured and, and it's the only way to get results. So what do you think that the benefits have been around you anchoring your exercise or your training around goals? Uh, well, I mean, the, so uh, uh, 
doing the same thing over and over again, whether you're in a work environment or you're <laughs> trying to pursue performance to the best of your ability, right, <clears throat> is the same exact problem set. Yeah. Um, so it's always a progression. It's picking your fights. Same thing at work. Um, you cannot expand a business on too many fronts. You cannot get good at too many things simultaneously. I guarantee you it's a recipe for disaster in business. You can get good at an awful lot of things progressively in a business. Guess what? You can get good at an awful lot of things progressively if you're training for triathlon, especially one that demands swimming, biking, running, and then all the other elements of nutrition, sleep, how you fit that into your schedule, you know, all of those, all of those sorts of things. They're complete parallels for, for each other. And, and it's funny that you, you sort of men mentioned the, the nutrition and the hydration and sleep and things like that, because I think that the recipe for you has been really important. Yeah. When you think about either traveling or, or, or everything that's there, there has been, or I guess has there been, when you think about the elements of, we call it the pillars of performance, but those elements have had a meaningful impact across your energy management in the day, how you've managed with time zones and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I, it's certainly energy management is, uh, I'm aware is the easiest way to, to put it is I'm, when I first met you, um, I can just remember the conversations being, I think engineers are somewhat, uh, they're, they're very good at certain elements of training for endurance sports and they're very bad at others. And the one that they're bad at is perception over data. You think? Yeah. <laughs> so the biggest thing I think I've taken away from 10 years of working with you is I use perception in a balanced way. I still use data, of course, but I don't nearly rely on the data. The data is more of a post it's a post-mortem analysis tool. It's not an in-the-moment analysis tool. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're trying to integrate endurance sports into your life, you learn how to deal with that. And when you are in a work environment, managing your energy throughout the day is understanding how to respond, especially when you're traveling, of, uh, you know, staying hydrated, properly fueling, proper bedtime. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, have I eaten properly today? Am I feeling low because my core body temperature is dropping or is, you know, I mean, you normally reach for the seventh coffee. Mm -hmm. That's not the solution. The seventh coffee is going to give you a quick hit and a big crash in Europe, right? That's not the way to respond to a problem when you're having an energy issue. And you, you learn to be aware. And when I was uh, younger, zero awareness. I would just, I'm tired. So therefore I do X and X was cookie cutter dependent. It was not contextual. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know that I'm not one for compliments. I'm just about to give you a compliment. <laughs> Jeez, I <laughs> think it'll be my one first in 10, in 10 years. years. But, uh, you, you are one of the, the very rare, uh, that, uh, probably a, amongst any athlete that I've had has done the, the most amazing job of being at one end of the continuum of data at starting where it was almost completely paralyzed by data shackled by it. And of course, it's not the quest to bring you to the other side where you become a Luddite and you ignore data and think that science is scary and, and data isn't. But to find the perfect balance in the middle is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult for people that are afraid of it, incredibly difficult for people that are the more engineered brain. And you are incredibly perceptive 
and um, and and it goes to my next question, really, which uh, you have been very coachable, and uh, and that is, uh, I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but. Before I ask you about how you became really coachable on that journey, how important do you think coaching has been for you? What role has it played in this journey? So it's probably the biggest, you know, a lot of people hire executive coaches. Mm -hmm. I just happen to hire a triathlon coach. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I, and it's, it's like I said, it's contextual, right? The part of your brain responsible for how it accepts coaching doesn't know its environment, the environment it's in. So the, when you're, when, when you're some, when you're geared towards taking risks, like I am, I mean, I like taking risks with yeah. business and, and things like that. I like new stuff that could fail. Mm -hmm. There's an element of stubbornness. Yeah. There's an element of ego. There's an element of stubbornness you got. And, and the first thing you have to do is wake up and say, I'm not going to get any better at any of this stuff unless I check that. And your initial reaction isn't quite that. That's That comes with a bit of self-reflection. And so I think the way it has manifested for me is not so much what it's done for me in sports, although it, it's done plenty. It's what it's done for me at work mm -hmm. and with my kids. Um, you learn how to be coached by the people around you everywhere. So pausing when you get pausing, when you get encouraging open and candid conversation, not only about your performance, but how you interact with others and improve each other's performance, which I try to do with my management team at work and everyone at work all the time, that transparency, that's a learned response. You, that is not that. In fact, I think for folks that like doing the kinds of things that I like doing, that's not natural. We are stubborn as mules, typically. And yeah. I think it's the biggest element. It's the biggest element of risk to failure of an enterprise is that, is yeah. not being sufficiently aware. You probably won't have heard that uh, last week's podcast, uh, as, as we're recording this, uh, was, uh, was the title of it was The Quiet Leader. And uh, my whole... Uh, thesis or premise was about the ability to actually lead from bottom up basically and have influence and uh, and in order for that to happen of course I, I really encouraged uh, coaches to listen to it and C-level executives to listen to it because it's really important for them to understand that leadership it isn't a top-down it's it's actually it has to be sort of uh, something that come from from all areas and and in fact I, I always <laughs> the listeners will be bored of me saying this but I think that people thrive when they have mentorship or leadership or coaching they have peer-to-peer -peer support and and that's sometimes very difficult for c-level executives uh, necessarily in this and then they are uh, guiding and mentoring people and when you get that recipe going that's where people start to accelerate globally mm -hmm. um so how have you learned to be a better coached athlete? And, and there's a follow on and I'll give it to you now. How, how has that really impacted you at charge point? You just alluded to it, but expand a little bit. Well, I mean, on the athletic side, it's an element of trust. Mm -hmm. It's developing trust in that someone else has more expertise than you and I couldn't be, uh, when we started working together, couldn't have been more different in terms of how we thought about the universe. Um, you're much more, you 
I mean, at the time, you were much more in balance between perception and data driven. You're still not, I think, a hundred percent data driven. Not nor do mm-hmm. I want you to be. I don't think that would make you successful or any of your athletes successful. But the um, interesting thing is, I had to learn how to deploy what is obvious to many people, which is perception. And when you take that into work, it's learning how to deploy perception. Okay, it's the same thing, except it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Where it's a little different is, I'm with my personality, I'm never gonna be a quiet leader. Okay, I, I don't know how to do that. Of course. But the coping mechanism that I've developed, and it, it won't work for everyone, everyone has to develop their own coping mechanism, is to actively tell people, I want your feedback, I'm only being this passionate because I really think this is important, but I am just another person in this discussion, and please tell me that I'm crazy if you think I'm crazy. And you literally, in a company, the bigger it gets, you have to go out of your way to reinforce that that's okay and to then open you, the door to open the door yeah. and then there exactly. there can't be a there can't be a yeah but there can't be a oh I opened the door but I really didn't want exactly. to open the door so when someone you have to reward someone that says you know I actually think that's the stupidest idea on the planet and here's why you have to reward that okay and and you have to reward that in not in here's a bonus or something you have to reward that in how you treat that person back so other people see this is a no recourse environment so we're all in this to try to create the best outcome and so what we have at charge point is we have a super debate oriented culture it's very debate oriented it's very uncomfortable for some people when they enter it it's not an argument culture it's a debate culture like anyone feels free to challenge anybody else in a very polite way it's not cool to be impolite but as long as we're all pursuing what we think is the right outcome we want to make sure that we integrate everyone's ideas and that's where i think the coaching has taught me what you know, how to really get the most out of feedback, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I've had to develop a little counter mechanism because I'm sort of the coach at work in one context, yeah. not always. And so <clears throat> I have to kind of look at it from the reverse lens in terms of how I encourage that in the team. As I listen there, the, uh, you know, the one of the things that I'm really lucky about is that I'm delivering this service and I am coaching people at the same time I'm absolutely getting coached. So, so I've, got, I've, I've struck gold with the, so far as developing as a leader for sure over the, uh, over the course of things. I think that that, that really resonates what you, what you discussed there because that's a real challenge to get that right. And, uh, and it's very, especially in my situation where it's sort of my baby in your situation, it's your baby. It, it's really easy to be protective and think you have to have the answer and to be able to actually be, I think vulnerability is a word. People think that it's, it's actually openness and, uh, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. I think vulnerability is like a, a misplaced term, not because it's not accurate, but because of what it conjures. It, exactly. It, it, it conjures in weakness. Neg- yeah, weakness. It, it's, it's not weakness. It's not at that all. at all. It's actually strength. Yeah. Interestingly, it can be channeled to strength. So, so we're going to go to some quick fire stuff. And, uh, uh, and it's ironic. I'm going to ask you some quick fire stuff. 
that we could talk about for three days. <laughs> so, so now this is your challenge. You've got to be succinct. You're you're showing up on CNN. You got one minute failure. Yeah. Uh, how do you approach failure? And I'd love if you can give me a case study in either or both of sport and business. So I'm going to make it specific on you, which is a challenge. No, um, I, I mean, sport, it's easy when you're, uh, you know, if you're in endurance racing for long enough, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. Uh, and so I've had some tremendous failures. I had, uh, I've only DNF'd one race out of over 60 uh, triathlons uh, in in 12 seasons. And uh, <clears throat> that was uh, Ironman Lake Placid. My grandmother died the night before. And, you know, you're, you're on the phone with family and, you know, I got zero rest that night, but that, I don't think that's the reason that I DNF'd. It just made it an even more stressful situation. Of course. Right. Yeah. And so that was the, uh, you know, it's a tough course. Um, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't fitness. It was, you know, hydration management probably and nutrition management and the extra stressors didn't help at all. And that, and then I had a bad crash at uh, a race I was actually doing pretty well in, in Montreblanc, 70.3 yep. there, had a bad crash coming into, uh, down the last hill, coming into trans. I had a front wheel blowout and unsurvivable at the speed I was coming down the hill, uh, managed to get my bike into transition and still ran that half marathon, but it wasn't my best race because I lost 20 minutes on the side of the road. Um, and I think in business, when I was back at Polycom, uh, which was my second company, we built a product that was, we worked our butts off on on a product. This was right around the time the internet was really gaining steam. Mm-hmm. So this was back in 1993, four timeframe. And we built a product that was a, a data conferencing product that enabled you to send um, both digital files, uh, believe it or not, via a floppy drive. That's what was in use back then. Uh, or it had a document camera and it would transmit that uh, while you were in a conference call because Polycom was famous at the time for those little speaker phones. You've probably seen them yeah. all over conference tables. We did video conferencing and stuff like that afterwards. That product was caught in a transition to the advent of everyone bringing a laptop to a meeting, which was, it was right on that phase where laptops were becoming popular and we missed that correlation. So that was the most horrible business failure I've ever had in that one product. So how do you view those failures? I've learned a ton. I I don't really, I don't think I could articulate the successful, we were playing successful products. Mm -hmm. I can't play tons of successful races. I don't, they're not memorable. And <laughs> everything that's taught me something has been on the back, usually, of a failure. I've learned way more from, fa- it sounds cliched, I've learned way more from my failures in, in all aspects of my life, with my kids, uh, marriage, with everything. What about uh, high achievers? And uh, two, more, two more questions for you before I throw you into the, the desert island round that, uh, that we do with all our guests. But, but two more questions. High achievers, and, and I've talked a lot about this in the show, but I'd love to know your thoughts as, as an obvious high achiever. Two to three critical, critical elements that, um, that you see for people that are high achievers. And it can be sport, it can be business, it could be, be family life. But what, what are the common traits that you see? Uh, traits or problems? 
traits. Oh, traits of high yeah, achievement? elements of high performance. Oh, uh, elements of high performance, uh, you know, consistently there's a tenacity in a high performer. Uh, it's, it's actually not as correlated with intellect as people think. It's much more correlated, in my experience, with um, not letting go until you find an answer or you mm-hmm. find a success. It's just, uh, one of, one of people I work with who I respect tremendously runs engineering for us at charge point says, you know, who's the only person that's right in the room every time. It's the person that says something can't be done because if you never try, if you listen to that and never try, well, by definition, you were right because you can't prove it otherwise. Right. Yeah. And the tenacious, the tenacity, you know, it's, uh, there are high, yeah, tenacity is number one. The second is, uh, you have to, you have to, uh, when you roughly see the elements necessary to achieve, say, a product or a business, you know, um, let's take electric vehicles, right? When you see battery technology coming into range uh, of being practical for a car and you see all the other technical elements coming into range, cost, supply chain, all the other stuff, um, you won't have all the answers to prove that you can ultimately get there. But when you have enough of the answer, you go and figure it out as you go, which is an element of tenacity, but it's a little twist. It's a little twist on it. It's, it's starting before you're sure, yeah, calculated risk. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You got to describe purple patch. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but I'm going to describe purple patch in one to two sentences. How mm. would you? I probably use one word. Uh, it's rational. Oh, interesting. For me. Anyway, um I you know, I it's uh uh you, you you have to be rational about a couple things. You have to be rational about expectations. If you're me in terms of what your performance, ultimate performance achievements are going to be, you have to be rational about the time you can invest. Um, you, you, you have to be rational about so many things that happen during a race. Right. Um, so you can stay focused in the, in the, in the event that something goes wrong and always will. I mean, something, mm-hmm. I mean, something very rarely you have a race that is like, wow, that was perfect. Yeah. It never happens. Right? Just like in my work day, it yep. never happens. So I think that's probably the best way to sum it up. Rational. I love it. Well, you're, you're coming to the end. We're going to throw something on you. Desert Island. So Desert Island uh, riffing off the old BBC BBC show, uh, mm-hmm. Desert Island Discs, where people used to have to come and talk about their top five pieces of music. We twist it a little bit and uh, have four very quick questions. These, are, these can be one word, one sentence, very little context. The first is you're getting exiled to a desert island. You get to bring one book. What would it be? You know, I am an informational reader. Uh, and so like the current book I'm reading is called Moonshot, right? It was about the space program, early yeah. space program. There's a lot of movies about that recently. And I think it's a, a popular topic. And so I would probably never read, no matter how good a fictional book was, more than a few times. So I would actually probably take a survival guide because I would be more worried about that than my, than the <laughs> entertainment value of a book, which yeah. just, says something perverse about <laughs> There's me. that word rational again. <laughs> yeah. You are such an engineer. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I enjoy informational books. <laughs> All right. So a piece of music, what would it be? Oh, uh, I, you know, I, I've loved music and 
I, when I was in college, I played in a bunch of bands. Even in high school, I played in a bunch of bands. It would be my roots are in classic, the classic, classic rock. It'd be hard for me to pick one, but it would be you know anything from you know Rolling Stones, ACDC, even you know in the eighties, U two, something like I would I would pick one of those. It would be under the umbrella of classic rock. We'll let yes. you get away with that. One other thing, yeah, and one other thing you can bring. Oh, like a thing? Yeah, anything. Anything. Uh, will that be a knife? Yeah, because I, you know, with that you can do a lot of other things, right? Uh, and I, you know, I don't think you could survive very well without. Are, are you one of those like preppers in case there's a nuclear war? Do you no. have a bunker under your house? <laughs> no, I'm the, I'm the opposite. If if the Safeway truck stops showing up, I, I got maybe three, four days before you know it's getting really desperate. And the, pet, the pets are starting to look appetizing. <laughs> exactly. And your last, you get you're getting dropped at the island. The boat is pulling away. You just have enough time to shout your final advice to the world. What would your final advice to the world be? Oh, you know, I, you know, the best things that have happened in my life have been, uh, they, I couldn't have predicted that they would happen. Right. So I, I think, I think people, I think people over rotate on trying to lay out too specific a plan for their life. I mean, not, none of the things that I've looked back on is something I would, want to remember what had been planned it's brilliant well pat thank you so much what a uh, an hour of power it's uh, it's been so informative and i really appreciate you I, I want to say this publicly i really appreciate you being a part of purple patch and uh, thank you for your friendship but also thank you to from all of the listeners of sharing your wisdom it's been great thank you matt very take, much it's been a pleasure take care thanks Well, what a great discussion that was, and thanks so much once again to old friend, great, almost legend of Purple Patch, Pat Romano. If you guys listening, if you're interested, and you might not be that obsessive triathlete, but perhaps you're an executive looking to thrive in life and performance, well, we do one-to-one coaching for executives, the Performance Executive Package. Feel free to reach out at purplepatchfitness.com, head to the podcast page, or you can look at our coaching options for Matt Dixon one-to-one coaching. We also, one thing that isn't on the website that you might be interested in, is we do a lot of work with executive teams. We go through to companies, doing seminars, even up to two-day workshops around all aspects of performance. So if you're interested... If you listen to the show, if you like what you hear, feel free to reach out at any time, purplepatchfitness.com. We can set up a conversation and see whether, well, little me might be good to come and visit little you and your company or corporation or even your executive team. We'll make it fun, but most importantly, we'll empower your team to thrive and find great performance. Till next week, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget... You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.